It's such a pleasure to be with you again this morning. And I bring you greetings from the Orland Park Christian Reformed Church and say we're very, very excited about this partnership which the Lord has led us into and we trust that as we go forward with it that we will see his guidance and blessing. So uh, God bless you in this day as you continue with your ministry here. I'm going to speak today on the theme of an unshakable kingdom in a shaking world. This uh, text was assigned to me by Mark, and so I had to really put my mind to it and uh, think about that in the context of the book of Hebrews and the particular scripture uh, that we have. So I've extended the scripture a little bit from what Mark gave me, and I'll be reading this morning from the book of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29, and I'm reading from the ESV. This is what God's Word says, starting at Hebrews 12, verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven." At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Lord our God, we come humbly and reverently before you today, recognizing that you are the great and all-powerful creator of our universe, and we give you humble thanks for having created us. And as we speak these words in your presence this morning, we pray that your Holy Spirit may speak to our hearts the message that you have for your church. All this we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Have you ever been shaken? Have you ever had an experience that rocked you to the core? Have you ever received that phone call or maybe that email or that text that made your knees feel weak? A 
A sudden and aggressive illness can shake our lives. Ten years ago, I got together with my family the first time all my brothers and sisters had gotten together in about five years, and we celebrated my son's wedding. And then two weeks later, I got a phone call, and my oldest sister told me that my younger sister, two years older than I, had a brain tumor. Well, four weeks later, we gathered for her funeral. And my parents, who had spent 40 years as missionaries in various parts of Latin America, who had always been so strong, hardly ever showed, had seen them show any kind of weakness or emotion, they were profoundly shaken. Sometimes it's the suicide of a family member or perhaps a friend. I'll never forget the man who came into my office to tell me about his brother who at midlife had been living with his parents and then hanged himself in their basement. He had done it intentionally, his brother thought, because his father had never really accepted him. This man and the parents of that son were profoundly shaken. A job loss can shake us in ways that we never expect. In my former congregation, there were about three individuals who had had very important positions in major corporations, and they were suddenly terminated in their 50s. And it was very difficult for them to find ways to find meaning and purpose in a new line of work, to pay the bills in certain cases, to cover their health insurance. These were individuals who were used to having a lot of power and control. Their worlds were profoundly shaken. Turmoil in our families can shake us. A marriage that we expected to last for a lifetime may unexpectedly run into trouble and even come to an end. Children that we had raised in the faith that we expected would embrace that faith and its moral values may turn against it. No one who experiences such things remains unshaken. And of course, then there's this pandemic which never seems to end. That has upended and shaken our lives in ways that we never expected. Whoever would have thought that our routines would be so disrupted, our personal habits changed, our liberties curtailed, all of us, if we're honest, would have to say that we have been shaken. Now the recipients of the book of Hebrews lived in a time when the foundations of their world were shaking. The Jewish temple had not yet been destroyed. At least the commentators on this book don't think it had. Jerusalem was still standing. The people of Israel were still inhabiting their promised land. But that was soon to come to an end. Fifteen or twenty years, maybe less, when the Roman general Titus in 70 AD marched into Jerusalem and destroyed this national icon of the Jews and drove the Jews from their homeland not to return for another 2,000 years. The world of these Jewish Christian believers was about to be profoundly shaken. 
What is the problem which the author of this book addresses as he addresses these believers? The problem he addresses is that they were not prepared for the shaking of their world. It seems that even though they were followers of Jesus, they were starting to get get tired of the demands that following Jesus placed upon them. From what the author says, we can infer that they had lost their initial enthusiasm. They had failed to work at growing in true spiritual understanding. They had stopped meeting for worship with other Christians. They were growing weary of what it meant to follow Christ. But their old former way of life had not been easy either, especially when it was first established, and that is what's addressed in the first part of the text that we had read. Because their Old Testament forebears, the Israelites, when they had come out of Egypt, had come to know God in a very frightening way as lawgiver and judge at Sinai. And so, as the Israelites approached Sinai, they saw that it was blazing with fire, as our text says. They came to a mountain that was shrouded in darkness and gloom and tempest. They had to listen to a withering trumpet blast and then to a voice, our text says, whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. The sight was so terrifying that even Moses, who had become somewhat accustomed to talking to this great and holy God, said, I tremble with fear. Talk about something that would shake you up. Well, what should we do if our world is being shaken? You know, that question was raised way back in the Psalms, in Psalm 11.3. We've all probably heard that text. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, what is the author of Hebrews attempting to do with his audience at that time? And what is the Holy Spirit trying to do for us through this text? Well, what the author of Hebrews does and what God is doing is turning our eyes upon Jesus. Those who had fixed their eyes on the fearsome revelation of God as lawgiver and judge were given a different place to focus. And that's where that other part of the text comes in, the verses 22 to 24. This this beautiful description of what it means to turn your eyes on Jesus. The author says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I want us to think especially about that last line. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What's being offered to us here? What's being offered is grace in the place of judgment. What was it that the blood of Abel called out for? Revenge! Punishment! 
But the blood of Jesus, sacrificed on the cross, calls out for our forgiveness. What's being offered is a blood that atones for all of our sin. A new British drama on PBS gives a glimpse of what happens when a culture loses its Christian values. In this drama, the quiet world of a small seaside town is rocked by the murder of a small child. In the course of exploring this murder, the drama exposes the profound sinfulness of almost everyone who lives in that town. The church is virtually empty on Sundays, when the pastor visits the people who have been bereaved and tries to speak to them a word of comfort, they tell him not to talk about God. Even though each one of these characters is exposed for their own moral failure, all of them yearn to see only one thing. All of them want the murder of this child avenged like the blood of Abel, they are calling out for judgment rather than grace. So as we experience the shaken, personal, and public worlds in which we live, when we look out there and all the different people you know, who are making the news, we can fall in that same trap. Because we think it's all those bad people out there, you know, all those rotten politicians, you know, all those violent folks out on the street, all those people committing crimes. That's the problem with our world. But we know that Scripture and the Apostle Paul says that when we condemn others in that way, we condemn ourselves. Remember what Paul said in Romans 2 1 to his self righteous fellow Jews, of which he had been. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. What does a world that is being shaken by sin need? Does it need more judgment? I think what our scripture is telling us here this morning and what all scripture tells us in the light of the coming of Christ is that a world and people who are shaken by sin need God's grace. Threats of judgment fill the Old Testament. Read the book of Jeremiah. But that did not bring about the repentance and redemption of God's people. And so it's Jeremiah who reminds us or teaches us that there is a new covenant that is coming. A new covenant that is going to be in the blood of Christ. Which is going to bring an inner transformation in all of us who bear the mark of sin. And God is going to place a new heart in the people he has made. Let me read again those words, beautiful words, from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, 
though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And then hear this very important sentence, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The book of Hebrews actually describes in detail that new covenant for us. And it describes why that new covenant is superior to the old one that was based on law-keeping and animal sacrifices and sinful human mediators. But the author of Hebrews has a burden. His burden is this, that after these believers, these Hebrew believers had tasted of the powers of the age to come, as he calls it. Because there is suffering to be had and to be experienced in being a follower of Christ and embracing this new covenant, they're, they're starting to fall back. They're starting to think about maybe the old religion was better. And so, perhaps today, the same word is being spoken to us that after having tasted the grace of Jesus, that we may think that because of its demands that there was something better back there about a more negative religion, about things you just don't do. The ethics shaped by a culture that you're in rather than by Scripture, rather than a life of truly sacrificial love. Living faith and Spirit-filled living are not an easy path. Paul calls it a sharing in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. But it is the only option for those who want to follow the true God. The author of Hebrews teaches his readers that going back to those old and what they mistakenly thought of as comfortable religious traditions, that that's not an option. He begins this book by saying that in these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son. And that's the final word. And God has spoken to us of a salvation given by grace, received by faith, based on the better word spoken by Jesus' blood. That word that calls out for forgiveness rather than punishment. And so if we want a life that cannot be shaken, we have to build it upon this rock. If we want to live in a world that cannot be shaken, we have to base it on the final revelation that God has made in Jesus Christ. Verse 25 says to us, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. We're reminded that in the Old Testament, that those people did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. Well, who was it that warned them? God. How did he warn them? Through Moses and the prophets. Who is it that, that warns us now from heaven? God. Through what means? Through the living word, through Jesus Christ who has come. And we are told, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. And then we come to that 
final part of our text, which focuses on God's promised unshaken world. Looking back to the God who shook Mount Sinai, the preacher of this sermon of Hebrew to the Hebrews says this. He says, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken will remain. And then he concludes, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now we started this morning by asking the question whether our lives had ever been shaken. And I suspect that all of us here, in some form or other, have had our lives shaken. We end by asking whether we want to be part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And what we're told in these final verses is that this world and all its vanities will finally be shaken. We have some previews of that in various parts of Scripture. The book of Daniel gives us a series of visions which shows us all the kingdoms of the world collapsing one after another. All these civilizations in which people invested all their hopes. I don't know if any of you remember an essay by a guy called Francis Fukuyama written around the year 2000 entitled, The End of History. And he said, liberal democracy is it. We have arrived. This is it. This is kind of like the kingdom of God. And of course, we've seen that maybe that isn't so stable. That maybe that too can be shaken. And of course it will be. All human civilizations, all cultures have been shaken. All kinds of empires have come and gone. And of course these are just reminders that the city of this world is impermanent and we have to look for the city that is to come. No, that can be a scary thought, but it's the only correct view of this temporal world. Unless we open our eyes to the fact of the instability of everything here based on human teaching and human power, we're not going to open our hearts to the offer here of an unshakable kingdom. The kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The new covenant spoken of in the book of Hebrews has arrived in Christ. This morning in the sacrament of baptism, we remembered this new covenant. We celebrated that the promises to us and to our children that God will be our God and that he is preparing for us a new and permanent and pure world. So what's the proper response to God's awesome promise? Hebrews 12.28 says, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. In a society where God's name is heard most often today as some kind of curse word or just an expletive in a sentence, let us worship this God with reverence. In a society where so many references to God are sacrilegious or flippant, Let's worship God with awe. Why should we do this? Because we are to be grateful. Let us be grateful for this unshakable kingdom that is coming. But then also, 
Because our God is a consuming fire. Now that image is really scary, isn't it? When we hear that, maybe we think, you know, just of this God of judgment once again that we heard of or encounter at Sinai. But actually, this God who is a consuming fire when He comes to us in His grace has a grace so great that it burns away our sin and all the impurities in our life that when He looks at us, He sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That is the God that we now worship. His mercy is so wonderful that He has spoken to us a final word of forgiveness and salvation in the blood of Christ. That's why we should worship this God with reverence. And that's why we should worship Him with awe. Because He is making us part of this unshakable kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for all that You have done for us in Christ. And we thank You for this Christmas season when we celebrate again in song and word and prayer in all of our gatherings and festivities, this inexpressible gift which has so transformed our lives. And Father in heaven, we pray that you would continue your transforming work in us and in your church and in our world. And may our Lord Jesus come quickly. We pray with the early church, Maranatha, come Lord. Amen.